With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HN Podcast, I'm John Miller, along with Steve Dace. Going to dive into some overarching, oh, maybe areas of emphasis, things to focus on, overriding questions relative to Iowa's upcoming football season 2019 that I have in mind. I've put together a few of these topics, and Steve and I are going to discuss those today. Steve, to me, first and foremost, uh, as we've often talked about, um, one of your base credos of life really is you can't hide your quarterback in college football. Uh, maybe the most demanding position in all of team sports is a quarterback at uh, the NFL level and certainly at the college level and, and big time, big 10 football. Nathan Stanley has put together a solid career, 26 touchdown passes in each of his first two seasons as a starter. Uh, no other Iowa quarterback has thrown for 26 or more in, in multiple years in his career. Uh, if he has another year like this, he will surpass Chuck Long's Iowa record for, was it like 76 career touchdown passes, something like that. And he'd be in the top five in Big Ten history. That, wow. is, that is quite, uh, that's quite a two-year run. And, you know, barring injury, probably going to be on that for three-year run. But the thing about Nathan Stanley, and, and really to me, one of the key questions and obstacles for Iowa, I think, outdoing an eight and four season as I think they're going to be, uh, is being more accurate, making the makeables on a consistent basis, and really being a gamer. Um, you know, he was just under 60% completion last year. I, I think that number needs to get up to, you know, 63 to 65. Now, obviously, if we were talking about a Greg Davis horizontal offense, you can have a higher completion percentage and not attack. And Iowa doesn't have or hasn't traditionally had the weapons on the outside to make that work. So, you know, completion percentage for the sake of completion percentage is not always, you know, the same thing. But in Iowa's offense, I, I think he needs to get that number up. I think he needs to make those makeables. He needs to hit a wide-open TJ Hawkinson uh, against Purdue on a um, beautiful uh, Statue of Liberty play that it would have been the most open receiver he's probably ever thrown to, and he missed him by 15 feet. Um, you, you have to call a timeout when it's first and goal at the Penn State four-yard line in a game that you lost by six points, and we'll get on that topic a little bit later. Nate Stanley has to mature. He has to be playing like a guy who has had over 24 starts and he just needs to play like he did during that three game stretch early in the season last year, uh, Northern Iowa, Minnesota, Iowa state. That's the Nate Stanley that we need to see this year. If Iowa is going to threaten to win the West, win 10 games uh, and do some damage. Well, you and I have had an ongoing argument uh, for the better part of more than a decade now about whether or not Iowa quarterbacks get better the longer they're in the program. And this season coming up for Stanley may ultimately... Actually, the argument, the argument has been that you assert they regress, not that they get yes. better. Yes, which is another way of saying, do they get better? Because uh, if you're not getting better, you regress, right? I'm, you're either, either getting better or you're getting worse. You're not really staying the same, right? 
I mean, if, so, you start, if you start out like Drew Tate did and you pretty much are that quarterback for the rest of your career other than when you get hurt, you started at a high level, you stayed at a high level. I'm sorry, I'm picking nits. Go ahead. It's a fault of mine. No, it's okay. And, and you're right, too. But I, I think this season by Stanley may ultimately determine the answer to that verdict. Now he's got I, – I think he's got something working for him and against him. And when you look at his last two years, the, the overall numbers – have been really good. But when you look beyond at, you know, advanced stats, when you look at situational awareness, that's where you see a lot of the inconsistency, inconsistency or inconsistency. And, and, you know, I, I, I think that he has, he has put up really good numbers in an era where, where, you know, you would know this better than me, but collectively I would imagine the last two seasons of the Iowa running game, are some of the most um, lowest overall potencies, outputs of the Ferentz since Kurt reestablished the program after what he had, the complete rebuilding job he inherited at the end of Aiden Fry. Yeah, we'll so, talk about that later on, actually more in detail. And, and so when your entire system, you're, when the majority of your passing game is predicated off of, of, off of play action and, and your running game is, has, is not as effective as it's typically been, let alone at a high high level, and you're still talking about a guy that has the the, the very possible potential of rewriting the record book. I think um, that's not usually the way this goes. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. I mean, he, he's not. You talked about Chuck Long. You know, he's not he's not handing the ball off there. Uh, you know, to uh, an All American tailback. Um, he's not handing the ball off to Sean Green. Um, you know, he's not handing the ball off to, you know, even a typical effective borderline or, you know, a thousand yard rusher like we're used to seeing given Iowa's, you know, uh, offensive style. So the reason that matters is one, it's, it's, a, it's a quarterback security blanket is the running game. And then two, Iowa's play, the play action pass is the basis for the Iowa passing and so when, when I, I think that he should be given more credit, given what we just said. Now he's got something, though, working against him this season. And, you know, for the first time ever, you lose two first-round picks at tight end. And, and I was going to be good at that position. I look at, I look at Iowa at, at the tight end position the way I look at Ohio State without Urban Meyer. Since Woody Hayes won his first national championship in 1954, Ohio State has won overall 73% of its games. That is by far better than any team in college football. No one's even close to that, like by three or four percentage points. So it's not, there's no question Ryan Day is not going to suck. He's never been a college coach before. He's never been a head coach on any level, but he's taking over the closest thing that the Big Ten has to a machine. And there's no way he's not going to win 73% of his games. Now, the problem that he has is he's taken over for a guy who won about 90% of his games. It was 54 and 4 in the Big Ten. That's a problem. Lost only eight games total in seven years. So he could be a college football Hall of Fame coach and the program could still suffer a precipitous decline because if you go back, if, if last year's team is 10 and 2 instead of 11 and 1, they don't even make the Big Ten championship game. 
if the team in 2017 is nine and three instead of 10 and two, they don't even make the Big Ten championship game. That's that's the slim margin for error Ryan Day has to keep the program where it's at. There's no way he's going to match that. It's just not going to happen. Period. It's just not going. It can't possibly happen. It, it, and that, it's never happened before. And there's a you can't be that great. So it's similar to the Iowa tight end position. As good as Iowa's had that been at that position, they just lost a guy that that was probably the most. Um, uh, had had the greatest God-given athleticism at that position from a Big Ten tight end I can ever remember. I mean, like ever. And then you then you're and and and, and then the other guy went, was the number eight pick in the draft, and essentially was a clone of the last Big Ten tight end to go that high in the draft. When we're going back to that '94 Penn State team now, with all that, which is one of the great offensive teams in recent memory, the Kyle Brate with Kyle. I mean, Hawkinson is almost like a Kyle Brady clone. So you lose the number eight pick in the draft. You lose another guy that in terms of his athletic, um, athletic prowess might have been the most athletic tight end in terms of measurables and testing to ever come out of this league, like ever, ever. So, and we're one of the few leagues in this, in the power leagues in the, in the sport that still value this position, frankly. So Iowa, given its history and tradition, is going to be good at that spot and it's in the style of offense it has. But you're going to need to have a precipitous increase in the running game to compensate for the otherworldly greatness at a, at a vital position in Iowa's offensive scheme. So on the one hand, I give Stanley more credit than I think he, does, that he often gets putting up those kinds of numbers without the benefit of a running game to rely on, let alone to effectively. I mean, there's just, if, if you liked the, if you liked the, the numbers Iowa's tight ends put up the last two years, imagine if Nate Stanley's faking those handoffs to Sean Green instead, uh, Fred Russell instead, Tavian Banks instead. Or hell, the guy that played early in Ferentz's year on teams that weren't that good and he got 1,000 yards. Who am I thinking of? The Kansas City guy. Liddell right? Betts. Liddell, he's just faking it with Liddell Betts. That's a lot. That, 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 has, that gets the attention of, of, of opposing linebackers more than the guys that he's been faking to the last two years. Especially with the ability of those tight ends to get down the field and behind those tight ends, up the, or those linebackers up the scene. So I think he deserves more credit than he's getting because of that. But I think what's working against him this year and in terms of getting that situational awareness and that consistency is the security blankets that have been there for him the last two years are now gone. And there's going to be a drop-off at that position. There, there just is. They still, Iowa could still have the best tight end in the Big Ten. And there's still going to be a drop-off at that position. So it's kind of a, a case of good news, bad news for him, I think. Right, right. So yeah, I don't think we disagree, and there are aspects to the running game that um, I'm going to bring up here uh, a little bit later on in this segment. Um, next for me, well, let's just get right to it. Growth in the running game. Um, last year, I was running back trio that they entered the season with, and, uh, and Torn Young, Ivory Kelly Martin, Makai Sargent. Um, Sargent had never taken a snap at Iowa or the Big Ten level. Uh, Ivory Kelly Martin has was very lightly used, as was Torn Young. Uh, IKM was injured a lot 
during the course of the season. Um, Sargent was a revelation and absolutely a key factor in Iowa getting to the nine win mark, but he still didn't have that uh, experience in Iowa's zone blocking scheme and the patience that is required. He's going to be a much better running back this year. And, and Torn Young, I mean, Kirk Ferentz has even said that they probably didn't use him enough. I think that those three, uh, along with potentially Tyler Goodson, uh, a true freshman who's going to get some opportunity, I think Iowa is going to be significantly better at the running back position but will the team be better at opening holes for them will the running game be as hard as it's been in recent years this year and last year Iowa averaged four yards per carry which actually I would not have bet they averaged four yards per carry the previous season it was 3.8 Kirk Ferentz has been at Iowa now what is it 20 years um, 10 of those seasons, Iowa had an average yards per carry of 4.1 or higher with like three of those years dead on at 4.1. The other 10 years, they've been below 4.1. Well, is the yards per carry for Iowa a harbinger of a 10-win season? Iowa's had five 10 or more win seasons in the Kirk Ferentz era. In 2000, the year they went to 12 and 2, in 2015, they averaged four and a half yards per carry. The year that they went 11 and two and won the Orange Bowl in 2009, they averaged 3.3 yards per carry, which ranked 102nd in the country. Uh, in 2004, when they went 10 and two, they averaged two yards per carry, which is 117th in the country, dead last. That was a year that Iowa was down to you know Sam Brownlee in the white chocolate era uh, with all those injuries. Then in 2003, they went 10 and 3. They averaged 4.2 yards per carry. And in 2002, five yards per carry as a team, which is the high watermark of the Ferentz era. Since Kirk got things rolling in 2001, Iowa's averaged 4.05 yards per carry during those 18 seasons. I would have thought these numbers all would have been higher. I would have thought the double digit win seasons would have trended outside of the 2004 season, which was fluky and a masterful job. So. Correlation and causation may not be there, but I'm telling you what, for a team that just lost the talent that it lost at a tight end position, which is as important to Iowa as any other team in college football, they're going to have to get more out of their running game. They're going to have to get this north of 4.1, 4.2 to have a shot to win a very competitive Big Ten West division. My primary concern is not the running backs. My primary concern isn't even the collection of talent that they have along the offensive line with two potential either first or second round NFL draft picks likely in the 2020 NFL draft at tackle and very capable guys at guard and a very promising player at center and Tyler Linderbaum though, who's never taken a snap at center, who's going to start as a true sophomore uh, and who I don't know that I've ever seen Kirk as high on a center, maybe other than James Daniels, other than this kid, but it's Iowa's blocking scheme. And we've spent a lot of time talking about that. Iowa employs, more often than not, the zone blocking scheme. The outside zone is the bread and butter of Iowa's running game. And defenses have adjusted to it. This is not 2002. It's not 2005. Heck, it's not even 2013. These three, four fronts that you see, getting more and uh, athletic linebackers on the field. Wisconsin has had a field day cutting down Iowa's cutback lanes on the backside 
and their defensive linemen slanting hard towards the flow side of that zone and really, really blowing things up before Iowa has a chance. I think if Iowa mixes in more gap blocking, more power O schemes, more traps, and, and, and lessens, lessens their um, reliance on outside zone, heck, just 10% fewer outside zones. Mix in 10% additional hat-on-hat scheme, power-o scheme, just to make the defense not be able to cheat and fire at snap the way they fire run downhill. I think Iowa's running game has a chance to be much better. But until I actually see that happen, I don't believe that it will change. I think that's really good analysis, John. And, and I think it's even more pertinent with the road schedule that Iowa's playing. It's, it's the toughest road schedule I think Iowa has played. I've been covering the team. I mean, Kirk Ferentz came here about the same time I broke into sports talk radio. It's fall of 1999. And it's the toughest schedule that I, 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 on the road I've ever seen Iowa play in that period of time. And, and I think efficiency which seems weird to say for a program whose brand is so well-established to the point that it's often mocked for being the same. I, um, I listened to a couple of interviews that Kurt gave at Big Ten Media Days last week, and they were all joking about how they're not really sure what to ask him because they've asked all the same questions and they know all the answers. It's true. And so, and so they just kind of had both of, both of these interviews chose to take kind of big picture views of, his take as a, you know, an elder statesman, a professor emeritus now about the sport in general, more so than talking Hawkeyes specifically. But these efficiency numbers, just I, I, we'd have to sit down and do the math. But if you were to extrapolate what an, what an extra 0.3 yards per carry is, over the, amount of, over the amount of times I was going to run the football, in any given season, and then how many extra points that would amount to in a given game. And then, then, then you prorate that further over the course of a schedule. And maybe it's the difference in an extra win or not. And I think that's even going to be more uh, of a priority this season because of the schedule on the road that I was going to play. And um, I, I can't add any more than what you did with that actual data. So I just I wanted to just stress kind of a bigger picture version of why that matters. That ultimately this this you know let's say it adds up to you know a half a point per game. Well, if you you know multiply that out by twelve, that's about a touchdown for a season. And given how many games Iowa plays throughout the course of a year that are seventeen ten twenty one seventeen. 24-21. And when things get really nuts, 28-24, right? Wouldn't you like to have a touchdown for one of those games over the course of a season? And now throw in at Iowa State, maybe the first – I think this is going to be the first time Iowa State's ranked in the preseason AP poll since 1976 at Michigan, at Northwestern. Um, just go on down the line of all the road games we've talked about. Yes, you get Penn State at home, but I think this is going to be the best defensive front seven Penn State's had in several years, certainly since Franklin's been there at least. So I think those extra yard, that, those decimal points 
given how much Iowa relies on the running game to set everything else up and establish its, its you know, foothold in a football game, I, I think you, those numbers really are important. No doubt. I mean, by and large, I think Iowa is going to average around 45 carries a game times 0.3, three-tenths of a yard better on the average. It's 13.5 yards per game. It's a first down. It's a, it's, it's a drive where you move the chains late in the game. You're up by six, and you can run out the clock. Sure. That can be a drive where, that you don't settle for a field goal in the red zone, or it's a four-minute drill at the end of a game right. where you run things out and don't give the ball back to an opponent. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Those things are, they are small in their numerical measurement but they're enormous in the context of not of a season in addition to the context of a game. Absolutely. That's a difference for one more win at least. And even if Iowa wasn't playing what I think is a historically difficult road schedule, if it was, a, if they were playing a typical, more typical road schedule, given the depth of this division this year, that's the difference between six and three and five and four is what you just articulated. Right there. There's, 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 there's no doubt. It's a, it's a definite difference. Um, perimeter de- uh, or interior def- or rather perimeter offense. Can the wide receiver cores, uh, the wide receiver core rather, become a weapon as the tight end position is going to be less dynamic than it was a year ago? Frankly, Iowa's tight end position may never be as dynamic as it was last year, although they are recruiting tight ends right now at a pace they have never recruited tight ends. But still, to ever assume you're going to have the, the weapons in tandem of a TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, it may be a once-in-a-lifetime show. Uh, and those guys were healthy, by and large. So can the wide receiver core become a weapon? They're going to have to be. And they would be rare, and the term rare probably doesn't do it enough justice relative to how rare it's been in the Kirk Ferentz era when an opposing defensive coordinator looks at Iowa's receiver core and says, oh, crap, I've got a scheme for that guy and that guy. you got a scheme for Marvin McNutt when he's a senior, but there's no DJK to go on alongside of him. In 2010, when you got McNutt and you got DJK, DJK is a senior and McNutt as a junior. That's the best tandem that they've had in my lifetime. Um, in 2002, yeah, CJ Jones, he was good. He was, he was, you know, he was not a first team all Big Ten receiver, maybe not even second team. But Mo Brown, when he was healthy, dude was a specimen and a difference maker. And then you throw in Dallas Clark, and then you throw in the best offensive line in school history. Well, they're not going to have the best offensive line in school history this year. And they're not going to have Dallas Clark. So can Brandon Smith, who made huge strides last year, I mean, you literally could see it from game to game, and he is a, a physical specimen on par with a Mo Brown. You've got uh, um, Amir Smith-Marset, who is dangerous and can take a lid off the top of a defense, but he's inconsistent in making the makeables. And Iowa continues to challenge him in that regard. Those guys are capable capable of being a pretty dangerous tandem. But who's going to be Nick Easley in his 52 receptions and doing the dirty work inside? You're talking about Nico Reganey and Tyrone Tracy, both of whom, I mean, Tracy has very, very good quick twitch, small space. It's kind of your slot guy. And Nico Reganey is likely going to be the guy that starts there. Everybody thought that Tracy was going to be the heir apparent until Reganey just had a phenomenal winner in spring. 
you're probably going to see both of them. Iowa had 140 combined catches between Fant Easley and TJ Hawkinson last year. Can this receiver core, for one of the few times in the history of the Ference era, actually step up and be a weapon and be consistent? I don't know. If I'm going to bet the odds, I'm going to say, well, I've seen this movie before, and it hasn't happened, but it has to happen this year. So some of the coverage I listened to from Big Ten Football Media Days, I'm trying to remember the show. It was a show on Sirius XM, and the host said that um, they had talked to some of the people from the University of Iowa off the record, and they were basically just dismissing the, the holdover receivers and counting on redshirt freshmen to provide them um, a different look of athleticism, hopefully, than they've had before. That resonate with you before I go on at yeah, all? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's fair. Yeah. So I'm looking at Iowa's 2015 schedule, the 12-0 and 0 season. Yes. And, and I count five games on this schedule that, that were decided by one possession, meaning eight two, a touchdown and a two-point conversion or less, eight points or less. Mm-hmm. Half of those games. And, and, and then you go to the game against Michigan State in the Big Ten Championship game that was a three-point loss. So six of Iowa's 13 games that year were, were decided by one possession, and Iowa went 5-1 and one in those games. Why, why do I bring that up? Because that's – that's the second greatest season Kirk Ferentz has ever had, other than the 2002 season. And maybe some people would say it's even better because they went 12-0. and 0. But they won a share of the Big Ten Championship in 2002. And over the course of that season, when you went undefeated, there was still a margin for error there that a couple of games here and there, I mean, even if you go, if you, even if you go four and one, in a regular season, in games decided by one possession, that's really good. Right, three and two is pretty good. Five and zero, oh? five and zero oh is tough to do that, and I will pull it off. The and I don't want to keep harping on this, man, but ultimately you are who you're playing. This I think this question that you're you know as, as you head into training camp that starts on Friday. As we start taking a global view of what are we going to be looking at and watching for in training camp, I think this, if, when you're facing a level of competition you've never faced before, you have, to, you have to give them a look you've never had before. So if I was, if I was not going to go seven and five or eight and four against this, if they're going to go nine and three or 10 and two, then they're going to they're, they're, they're gonna have to, because even if they're better, even if they're better at the running game, the formations they use, the quality caliber of the opponents they play, is still going to mitigate their ability to just go on the road. We're just going to go on the road, man. And, and yeah, I know I, Iowa State's been to play Iowa tough at home before, but this is going to be the best defensive front seven Iowa State's ever played, ever put on, ever put on the field at least since most of our audience has been alive. You know, you're going to go on the road, and, you know, I know, I know Chris Hassel likes to text, tweet all the time about Iowa's record against Michigan. You know, that was – I get that. I, I lived through those games. But, you know, with, with the exception of one incredible play by a running back, 
Iowa's, Iowa's offense did not move the football across the street the one time they played Don Brown. They, like, they couldn't move a centimeter the entire game. So you're going to go on the road. You're not just going to be able maybe, – maybe if you're really good and, and, and having a typical Kirk Ferentz running game, there might be a couple of those games where you just go on there, hat on a hat, man up, and pound the ball down their throats. But you're not going to win. You're going to finish with a winning record in those road games doing that. You're going to have to give those opponents a different look than they've seen before. I think this issue is the key question of camp. Because I also think, given the caliber of competition, this is something that it, it, it's going to be difficult to get better as the year goes on. Because if you don't, if the signal doesn't, if the film doesn't go out early on, hey, you have to respect that running game. You got to, you can't load up the, that or that that passing game. Those guys on the outside, you're not going to get away with just playing a bunch of man and loading the box. It's going to be tougher and tougher and tougher as the year goes on to get teams out of that look so you can run the football more effectively. And, and I think this is the key question to this entire season in, in terms of Iowa's ability to not just survive, but thrive against that schedule. Can they give them a look, those opponents, that they haven't seen before, especially in light of what's been lost at tight end? So I think this is, this is the prime directive for this camp is to see, ultimately, do we have those kinds of weapons? Now, when, I, when I'm saying, when I say it's difficult to develop that as the year goes on, I don't mean a redshirt freshman receiver isn't going to be a lot better in November after they've had seven, eight games under their belt and they've seen several different looks and they're going to be week three against Iowa State. Of course, of course that's going to happen. I mean, whole, I mean holistically and schematically. You need to put things on film that a defensive coordinator goes in there and says, this year's different. I don't know that we can just start with that eighth guy in the box there. I don't know that we can do that. All right. And, and I think that's, I think establishing that more than a particular player or two, but establishing that as a threat, who would, those, those players can alter and change. And one guy can develop as the year goes on and, and kind of, and another guy gets hot early and another guy comes in later. That's fine. But they, that signal needs to be set right away, I think, that you aren't going to get away with playing them the way that, say, Mississippi State played Iowa in that bowl game. And then Iowa did make enough plays in the passing game to do something about that. But that, I think this is the key question of the entire season is this issue right here. Do not disagree. Uh, another thing I'm going to be looking, on, looking at is the interior of Iowa's defensive line. I think they're going to be uh, more than capable at defensive end, but what about that defensive line? Is Davion Nixon going to be all that he's been hyped to be? And when I say been hyped to be, for those of you who've forgotten, Alabama came in and offered this guy a scholarship late in the game. He stayed with Iowa, but he was ineligible last year. Went to a JUCO, uh, came back to Iowa, and then – it was dicey, touch and go in the spring. Is he going to be there? Is he not going to be there? Not exactly sure what the issue was, but it has been resolved apparently. And he is going to be there. Talking about a guy who's 6'3", 306 on the inside of Iowa's line. Iowa has not had many of those during the Kirk Ferentz era. Uh, Jaleel Johnson, Colin Cole, 
those would be two that stand out relative to that size. Both of them played in the NFL. Yes, Mike Daniels was in there, but he wasn't that big. He was certainly strong as a horse. And Cedric Lattimore, Brady Reef, Noah Shannon, Austin Schulte, uh, Van Valkenburg, a transfer from small school in Michigan. You're talking about names that are not household, names that are not necessarily proven. Brady Reef has been proven to be a capable, you know, 25 snap guy. Uh, Iowa really likes going seven, eight deep to keep people fresh and not have to relive through that 2010 year when you had four of the best they've ever had along the line at one time, but that was about all they had. And they run out of gas late in the game when they're running, you know, facing 80 or 90 plays against Dan Person and Northwestern and you lose. Can this group develop? I think there's a lot of pressure on Davion Nixon to actually be what I think that he can be. Agree. I think everything you said is right on the money. I think if you asked any quarterback or offensive coordinator, what would you, if you had a preference, would you rather face a freak coming off the edge or would you rather face pressure up the middle? And they all say they'd rather take a freak off the edge. Because he might get home, Jadavion Clowney might get home once or twice. You know, that kind of a freak. But those other plays, and, and he can, those couple times he gets home, he might wreck you. But you can chip, you can keep a guy in. Um, it's a lot easier to rotate your protection and account for the, the freak coming off the edge. And in this case, you know, that's a, if you plug that name in for Iowa, that's AJ Epinesa. It is easy or simpler. Maybe easy isn't the right word. Simple and easy aren't the right thing, aren't the same thing. It's simpler to account for that guy coming off the edge. But the pressure in the interior up the middle can just wreck everything about your defense or your offense. You know, and I lived through this as a Michigan fan where we had years where our two offensive tackles were Taylor Lewan, perennial pro bowler, and Michael Schofield, who started um, at tackle for the Broncos Super Bowl team, Peyton Manning's last year. And, and we couldn't block a paper bag because the amount of pressure, you know, the difference in drop-off and talent between those two tackles and the interior of the line was precipitous. We just got wrecked and destroyed in the interior from pressure up the middle and it threw off all that timing uh, on, on the offensive side of the ball. So when you have the kind of uh, force that Epinesa is, you don't necessarily, you know, have to be a great player. Uh, to you know, it helps if you are obviously, but you don't have to be to generate great pressure up the middle. But but you can help Epinesa be a great player uh, if if you can at least be serviceable to good. So I, again, it, it, I don't think it's as important as the previous issue, but there's an overarching theme here. I think John, when whether we're talking about Stanley's efficiency, we're talking about an extra you know 0.3 yards per carry, we're talking about you know, with the exception of, you know, DJK and, and McNutt, atypical production from the receiver position. And now we're talking about, you know, most college programs would, would give vital parts of their anatomy to have one AJ Epinesa. And now we're talking, can we get a second guy in the interior? If there, the, to me, I see one overarching thing here, and that is we're looking for ways in camp. Iowa is looking for ways in camp to see, given – given the grueling schedule we have to play, what can we do to widen our margin for error? Because the typical 
low margin for error kind of football we like to play here at Iowa on a given on a in, in a given year. Well, that, this is not any given year. This is an atypical schedule. And you throw in the road game at Iowa State, it's among the toughest road schedules I've ever seen a Big Ten team have since I've been a fan. You know, that's a few decades, that's like four decades. So what can we do to, to, to widen um, our margin for error holistically accordingly? And I think that's kind of the overarching theme of all of these points we're addressing. Every little bit counts to widen your margin for error, given the schedule Iowa has to play. You know, it's interesting you said that, and I thought you were going to see what I saw. And what I see, common commonality so far, what we've talked about is the word development. Development. Is Nathan Stanley going to be to take that step in development and become that three-year starting quarterback and be consistently? Um, the, the development in the running game. And to me, that's as much development in, from a coaching standpoint as it is anything else stylistically. Development at the wide receiver position. Deve- development of the interior of the defensive line. I totally agree with you relative to your inside-outside conversation. Yeah, Epines is going to wreck you twice a game. I don't know that you're really going to avoid that. But that may be two drives, right, out of 11, mm-hmm. 12, or 13. If you have dominance on the interior, that's all day, baby, all day. That is every play, every drive, it's Mississippi State. And that means you're going to have to hit a couple of home runs and hope that your defense is really, you know, home runs on offense and hope your defense is really damn good. When you have it, the also, in- it also could mean Epinesa wrecks you three times a game because of the focus and the pressure that the consistent interior pressure puts on your offensive line. Oh, and there's it, no doubt. Yeah. Again, that expands your margin for error again as well. That's kind of what I think we're looking for. If you're an Iowa fan, you're Indeed. looking for what gives us, you know, we're probably not going to be able to win all of these games or win the amount of them we need to get to Indianapolis with the, with, with a typical Iowa way of playing because of the intangibles that are working against us playing these teams on the road. And these teams are all historically good. This, this could be the most talented Purdue team. I still think they're about a year away, but I think it could very well be given who they've been for the previous decade, the most talented Purdue team since Joe Tiller retired. Uh, This could be the, this is going to be PJ flex best Minnesota team. yet. This is going to be, you know, I think it could be the most talented team Pat Fitzgerald's ever had at Northwestern, depending on how good Hunter Johnson is. Because you're talking about last year's defensive front seven that was so good. They've got a running game there with the Bowser kid. If you're going to bring in a five-star quarterback, that, that could up the ante in terms of what their overall margin for error is. I think it's the best team Iowa State's uh, had. Um, so when, you, when, you, when, when you're playing all of those teams – my numbers say this is going to be the most talented team Jim Harbaugh has had. You're playing most of the games I just mentioned, not all of them, but you're playing most of them on the road. You know, it's year two for Scott Frost. We saw that he, you know, year one, he takes over an 0-12 Central Florida team. They go 6-6. Six and six. Year two, they go 12-0. and 0. All right? You know, they're Phil Steele's number one turnaround team of the year. Last year, his number one turnaround team of the year was Florida. They went from 4-8 and eight to 10-3. and three. So, when you're going to play all of those teams, and most of them are going to be on the road, every you're, you're not the, the old formulas, unless you are more talented than these other teams, and they're not. They're, they're more talented than a typical Big Ten West team is. But when, 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 you're, when, you're, when, when my talent score gives Iowa 282 points, 
and Purdue is 200, or, or let me take a team you're playing on the road. Nebraska's 270 points. That is not, that's not a, like Ohio State with 326 points. Ohio State can go in there and maybe be minus one in turnovers, go down 10 to nothing in the first quarter, and eventually their depth of talent wins out over the course of three and a half hours. If they get the next three quarters, they end up playing the way they're, they're capable of playing. That talent deficient, that talent gap between an Iowa and a Nebraska isn't far enough for Iowa to be able to compensate for that. So you're gonna have, they're going to have to come up with ways or, or, or levels of, of development, as you called it, that gives them a margin for error. They pre, they, they, in a typical Iowa season, they don't need. They're going to need more of it this season. Yeah, you're right. They are, and that's why the offense is going to have to lead the way. Um, and it's interesting you laying out what you just laid out. I mean, we've talked about Iowa's challenging schedule numerous times. I mean, how many times can you talk about it, Miller and Dace? Well, what you just said, I think, puts a new spin on it, and a very sobering one, really, is that those teams you mentioned aren't just going to be good. They're going to be, like, generationally good or decadal good best in a decade, best in a quarter century. Um, that is, that's very good um, perspective on the challenge of the schedule. All right, my last thing, winning the close ones. And you touched on this a little bit earlier because there's going to be a lot of them. How do we know that? Because there always is. Uh, you talked about 2015, five or six games that were decided by uh, a possession or less last year. Iowa lost, you know, what Iowa went like five and four in Big Ten play and Northwestern went eight and one. Mm-hmm. Well, Iowa lost to Northwestern 10 to 14. So say you win that one. Now you're six and three, Northwestern's seven and two. It's a two game swing right there. And you lost at Penn State by six in a game where you had first and goal at the Penn State four and Nate Stanley throws an interception on first down because he didn't call timeout. You lost by two against Purdue in a game where Nate Stanley missed a wide open TJ Hawkinson on a statue of Liberty. That was Purdue, right? Not Penn state. I can't recall, but they had enormous opportunities, enormous opportunities to win that game against Purdue. Those three games right there, you win those three and you're, you're eight and one and you win the game division by two. If you go two – Just two of those three, and one of them yeah, North- I was going to say, if you win two yeah. and three, if you go two and one and one's Northwestern, you win the division. Right. Um, they, they, they did win one of those games last year decided by a, a possession or less, and that was the last one against Nebraska. So you went one and three. The last three seasons, they're six and nine in those, in those games. Um, you know, if you go 500, that's probably what you can expect. I was going to need to be like – Three and three and one, four and two in those games this year, if it has a chance to win the West. And I don't think, as another theme of this podcast, I don't think you're going to get there doing things the same way that you've always done it. You're going to need to actually attack on offense, a word that Brian Ferentz likes to use. Does it mean be careless? Does it mean be stupid? It just means be a little different here and there. It means 10% fewer outside zones and 10% additional power O hat on hat schemes combination or trap to make people hesitate for a split second 
and not know exactly what's coming. I'm not one of those people that say, hey, we Iowa runs. There's so much nuance to the simplicity. Really, there is. Right. But there's not nuance to running 40 outside zone plays a game. And I know that those outside zone plays set up other things. I get that. But man, so many of those plays are dim, dead on arrival. You got to cut, you got, you, you got to cut out the number of dead plays. You, you got to do more things in the passing game, as you talked about, just to give some hesitation to the opposing coordinator and therefore the players on the field. So they have to think versus react. And that's going to come down to winning the close ends. All these things in the stew, I was going to have to do things a little differently. Amen. I mean, I think that's the perfect summation, uh, bottom lining conclusion of really the theme of this whole podcast, looking ahead to, to camp when it opens up on Friday. And I, I would just close by stressing this again. When you're playing an atypical schedule, you're, you can't lose your identity. It's a, you are who you are. It's Indeed. Been, it's been incredibly successful, right? But you're going to have to be willing, if your schedule is 15 to 20% more difficult than what you typically have to play, you're going to have to be willing to be 15 to 20% less predictable, 15 to 20% more unconventional than you would be accustomed to because you don't have the talent and that's not even counting on, heaven forbid, something were to happen to Nate Stanley, okay? So you don't have the talent to just go out there and say, I mean, nobody, nobody other than Alabama has recruited better than LSU has the last 10 years in college football. And Alabama recognized that it had to modernize its offensive approach when it hired Lane Kiffin. And it recognized it was not going to be able, it, it, it could conceivably gamble that it could just out-athlete you. But that gamble, if the margin for error at Alabama is national championship or bust, then it, then that's, it couldn't just allow some teams to hang around and steal a game or two so it doesn't make the playoffs. So they made the move. And, and I don't think Iowa needs to make that kind of a move, but I do think if Alabama believes that, it, that, that at, the, at the level it recruits, when it faces the kind of caliber of competition it faces in the SEC every year, that it simply cannot just line up and trust that my Jimmys and Joes are better than yours every single week. And Iowa is playing an SEC kind of a schedule this year with the road games it faces. It's going to have to adjust its level of flexibility accordingly. I agree. Well said. And, and I think the Alabama analogy is, is a pretty good one to sit back and consider. All right, that'll wrap up this installment of the HN Podcast. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you soon.